right to it. Uh, we're continuing in 1 Corinthians, obviously. Um, we've been cruising through the section on carnal worship where Paul exposes the Corinthians' fleshly, self-centered worship, worship practices, and he admonishes them to engage in scriptural service, you know, to come together and to worship Christ the way the Bible says we ought to, and that's not what they were doing. And we have learned that love was not at the center of the Corinthian church, which is one of the reasons why it had so much dysfunction and so much division and so much trouble. Love is to be central to the church of Christ, and it just wasn't at the Corinthian church. Uh, J. Mac says, of all their many failings, the Corinthian believers' greatest failure was in love. Uh, just as the presence of love covers a multitude of sins, and MacArthur says 1 Peter 4, 8, he says the lack of love, so if you've got love, it covers the multitude of sins, but a lack of love actually leads to a multitude of sins, is what he says. And he continues by saying the Corinthians had great lovelessness and great sin. And what they needed above all else was great love and great righteousness. That which uh, most completely characterizes God himself should characterize his children. So what is he saying there? Love and righteousness. And these things were just absent in this church. And in an effort to draw the Corinthians back to their high calling as God's loving, righteous people, Paul pens chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which is sometimes called the love chapter or the love section or the love passage. Um, in fact, I was at a wedding last night, and I don't want to spend much time on this, but I was at a wedding last night, and what text do you think the minister quoted? 1 Corinthians 13, and I wanted to yell out from the back, it applies to them, but not in the same way that you're saying, but you know, hey, I, I'm a DJ, I get paid to be there, I just had to be ready to play some music. So, Paul writes this passage in a particular context, especially to a loveless church. That's the idea. Now, the motive for desiring any spiritual gift or for engaging in any sort of Christian service, it has to be love for Christ and love for his church. It can't be out of selfish motives or self, selfish gain or anything to do with us. It has to be because we love Christ and because we love his bride. We love his church. It can never be because us believers, we've been given spiritual gifts and we want to somehow show off and make a name for ourselves. And that probably best describes the Corinthian church. Now, we have divided chapter 13 into five sections under five main points. And last Sunday, uh, over the course of an hour and 15 minutes, we looked at points, main points one and two in verses one to seven. And then this morning, we'll focus on points three, four, and five and, and close out the chapter. And that's if I can stick to my script here. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, again, it's verses 8 to 13. It's the rest of the section. And that's what we'll be looking at today. And I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray that um, I, don't, I don't need to be rushed. I don't, I don't need to keep watching that clock and have it manipulate the way that I see your word or what I'm trying to do. Uh, there'll be an awful temptation for that. I just pray that the, the spirit would preach your word through me. And that do it in a timely manner. And it's not going to be the Spirit's fault if it's not in a timely manner. It's going to be mine. So I just pray for that, Lord. And I want to make the best use of this time and the best use of your people's time. So help me to do that. But make us tremendous listeners this morning and great note takers. And more than that, not just hearers or note takers, but doers of the word. 
Um, this has always been the struggle for us as the people of God. And it's not hearing the word or believing the word or trusting in your word. It's actually doing it. And I find that's where the great difficulty is for me personally at times and for this church in particular. So help us to do that. Teach us again about love this morning. And we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 3. Um, last week we looked at the significance of love and the spirit of love. And the spirit of love means the attitude of love or the behavior of love. Now we're picking up where we left off and we can look at our third main point. And number three is very simple. It's the span of love, the span of love. And we see this in, in verses eight to 10, eight to 10. And I'll start at verse eight. This is what he says next. After talking about how uh, uh, talking about love and, and, and how love behaves and the attitude of love and how love is never selfish or unkind or these sorts of things. Now he shifts in verse 8. He says, and love never ends. It never ends. And he says, as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, and we know that's human languages supernaturally given to people that don't know them, they will cease. And then he says, as for knowledge, it will pass away. Very interesting verse here. The first thing does uh, Paul does really is he does describe right off the bat, just right out of the gate, is the span of love. What is the span of love? How, how long does love last? What is the duration of love? He says love never ends. It never ends. That's it. In a nutshell, let's pray and get out of here. Right? I mean, it's that simple. There's, there's your duration. There's your span. It never ends. The span of love is forever. Love is, as he says, never ending. We learned last week, love is eternal. And, and another word for that would be love is everlasting. And why is it that its duration or span is forever and ever and ever and it never has an end? It's because it is a communicable attribute of God. Um, God is eternal and if God is love, love therefore must be eternal, just as his holiness is eternal or his righteousness is eternal. Uh, so love is eternal because God himself is eternal. Love never ends because God himself never ends. Love has no beginning and no end, just as God has no beginning and no end. Love has been around as long as God has been around. How long has God been around? Since he created the world? No, forever and ever and ever. He has no start or stop. And that's how love is. Love has always been just as God has always been. Think of it like that. Now, since love is everlasting, it's eternal, it never ends. And since God pours this everlasting love into our hearts, into the hearts of believers through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5 Believers must always be what? Loving. If God is love and he's eternal and he's given us his eternal love, believers therefore by default must always be loving. He's poured this love into our hearts. That's the goal. That's the aim. In fact, love is to be our defining characteristic. Um, we're not supposed to be known. I mean, it's, it's okay to be known by things that are not harmful or or wicked or wrong or unrighteous or hurtful toward others. But the thing that we ought to be most characterized by is our propensity to love and by our ability to love and by our ability uh, to show love and not by just our ability to show it, but how we show it on a daily basis. And so 
what somebody ought to think about us, like if somebody thinks about Pastor Phil or DJ Phil or whatever Phil I am in that moment, because I wear a lot of hats, Daddy Phil, Husband Phil, Mad Phil, whatever it is, whatever Phil I am in that moment, the thing that ought to define me isn't mad or anything, it's that Phil loves, that his church sees him as a loving pastor, that uh, his neighbors see him as a loving person, that somehow at a wedding, the people see him as a loving DJ. That sounds weird, but you got to be it, you know, and he's a loving guy. Jen, we know Jen because she's not just Jen, but she's, she loves people or Steve loves people. This is our defining characteristic. It should be for the Christian. And that's because God has poured this eternal love into us. We ought to be known for our love. John 1335, he says, Jesus tells his disciples, this is how people will know that you belong to me. By what? Your theology? By how well you know the Bible? By how well you ride a mountain bike? Well, I certainly at times are tempted to be known for that, and I just broke two ribs, so obviously it's not very good. But it's for our love, for how we love, for how we love our spouses, for how we love our children, for how we love fellow believers, for how we love our neighbors, for how we love our enemies and adversaries. That's a real challenge, but that's what we ought to be known for. And the uh, Corinthians, that's not what they wanted to be known for or characterized by. They wanted to be known and characterized by their spiritual gifts and their, their feats of service, you know. I, I, I have the gift of tongues, and I want to be known for how well I speak in these intelligible languages. And, or I have the gift of prophecy and want to be known for how well I can articulate or unpack God's Word. Or they wanted to be known for something other than love, for their time, talent, and treasures, and the things that they would give, or the things that they are. They wanted to be known for their ability to speak in tongues. This is why they eagerly desired what they perceived as higher gifts. Remember back in chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says, you ought to pursue the higher gifts, gifts that are above tongues, because their obsession was with tongues. And, and he wasn't like literally, tell, if you told a group of people like this, go, there's higher gifts, go after them. That's the first thing they would do. I think he was being sarcastic. I think what he was saying is you ought to go after the higher gift, the highest of all gifts that God has given you. And I'll tell you what it is in chapter 13. It's called love. Love is the highest gift we've ever been given by, by God. He butchered his son in love for our sin. I mean, you cannot supersede or get higher than the gift of love. And so that's why he talks about love in 13. You want this spiritual gift and this spiritual gift, and it's always for your own glory and for your own accolades and for your own attention and for your own reputation. And what you ought to be as Christians is you ought to be about love. So I'll tell you what it is, and I'll talk about it in chapter 13. They were all about showing off. They were all about self-fulfillment and, and self-glory. They were very much like American society and culture. In fact, they had become like Simon the Magician, who was uh, a gentleman who heard the gospel preached by a, a disciple named Philip, or by, a, I think it was Philip, the, uh, he was an apostle, and heard the gospel preached by this guy. I, I, my mind is escaping me now. If it's not Philip the apostle, he might have been Philip a deacon, but I think it was the apostle. Anyways, he hears the gospel preached in his territory, I think it was Samaria, um, and uh, he hears the gospel and he allegedly believes the gospel. He's even baptized along with other people. But then at some point he offers to buy the Holy Spirit. 
He sees the apostles come down just to confirm that people there are hearing the actual gospel and being saved and, and these things. And he sees the Peter and, and John laying their hands on people and they're receiving the spirit. And people always wonder, how could they be saved and then later receive the spirit? That's an interesting thing. Well, the idea there is that when, when the actual apostles, so now we know Philip wasn't an apostle because the actual apostles showed up. And when they showed up, the Spirit was given in their midst and even through them to, to, to confirm to them that God was bringing salvation to the Gentiles. So if you've ever wondered why there's a gap, that's it. But in any case, this guy is baptized along with a whole bunch of believers. And now he's trying to buy the Holy Spirit because he sees the power of the Spirit demonstrated through a couple of apostles, Peter and John. I, I think maybe he was even looking for a discount that day. How much does it cost for the Spirit today? Are they running a promotion? I have a coupon code. Where do I enter that, right? I'm always on the search for those, by the way. And this whole story is in, uh, it's in the book of Acts. And uh, it's in, actually, uh, this guy wanted to buy the Holy Spirit to improve his magic act because he was a magician, Acts 8.18. Now, so here's a, a weird guy who seemingly is a believer who wants to purchase the things of God for his, own, for his own reputation, for his own money-making schemes. And, and the Corinthians, I don't think, were trying to make money, but they were certainly trying to obtain spiritual gifts for their own gain, like Simon the Magician. There's the connection. They were like this guy. And this guy, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you go back and look at history, church history in particular, this guy became a, a major false teacher and heretic, Simon the Magician did. He went around posing as a Christian and misleading people. Um, he, he was a terrible guy later on, and you can read about this in Antiquities of the Jews, book 20, chapter 7 by Josephus, and it's also corroborated by an early church father during the patristic age named Justin Martyr. We're familiar with him. Simon the Magician was a, a kind of pay-for-play guy. You know, he pays and then he wants to play. I pay, I want the Holy Spirit. And the Corinthians weren't trying to pay for the Holy Spirit or anything else, but they were certainly chasing after spiritual gifts for their own benefit and good. It, it, they weren't thinking about how they could bless the church or how the church, for the goodness of the church, it was all about themselves, especially the showier gifts because they would bring more attention. They were obsessed with personal achievement, obsessed with self-image. There was no room for love in their lives or in this church. Why is that? Because they were prideful, and love and pride are mutually exclusive, which means they cannot exist in the same person. You're either loving or you're prideful. You can't be lovingly prideful. In fact, you can't. Actually, I'm wrong. You can be loving and prideful at the same time. You can love yourself. That's the only form of love you have if you're a prideful person. You just love yourself. You worship yourself. You do. You just can't be both at the same time. And there's no room for love in these people or this church. For love to be present, pride must be absent. Can't be both at the same time. Now, after describing the span of love at the beginning of verse 8, it never ends. Paul begins to illustrate the span of spiritual gifts, right? So love goes on and on and on and on, never has an ending. And this is what the Corinthians ought to be focused on, but it's not what they're focused on. So what does he do? He juxt, juxtaposes the span of love, which is forever, to the span of spiritual gifts, which is, do you think it's forever? It's not forever. See, the obsession they had was with something that's only temporary. When the obsession they should have had should have been with love 
and something that is forever because love never ends, but the spiritual gifts will end. And so that's exactly what Paul is about to teach them. He begins to illustrate the span of spiritual gifts, comparatively speaking, to love. And he starts with the highest of all the spiritual gifts, which is prophecies. Paul is so smart, especially when he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He goes right to the top. You guys want tongues, and that's a secondary gift. It's down the chain. Let's begin with the highest spiritual gift of all, a, a guy's ability to unpack the Word of God effectively, which is the spiritual gift of prophecies. We know it's the highest gift because in chapter 14, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 39, he identifies it as being at the top above tongues or anything else. Now, he says prophecies here in the text, and the Greek word for prophecies is propheteia, and it means an utterance that is inspired by God. That's what the word prophecies means here in this text. Now, like I've said in previous sermons before, prophecy or the gift of prophecy, it actually came in two forms. It came in the form of revelatory, where you were literally revealing the truth of God to someone like for the first time, like with the apostles. And then it came in the form of expository, which is not revelatory. It is the idea of preaching the word effectively. Like anytime somebody preaches the word effectively, they're prophesying, but they're not giving new revelation. They're giving revelation that already exists. So you have two forms. You have revelatory and you have expository. The Old Testament prophets, the apostles, and only a handful of others actually possessed the gift of revelatory prophecy. There's only a few that actually had this, where they were actually revealing the truth. While a great many Christians had been given and are still given the gift of expository or expositional prophecy. So one has ceased, the revelatory style, that's gone. But there's a great many people then and throughout history and even today that actually have the expositional prophecy. The ability to unpack God's word clearly and effectively. Now, in juxtaposition or in comparative, in comparison or in contrast to love which lasts forever, Paul is saying the gifts, these highest gifts, like if you were going to go after a gift, just speaking, I don't know, theoretically, this would be the one to go after because it's the highest. And he says, the gift of prophecies in comparison to love, it shall what? Pass away. In other words, love never ends, but the highest spiritual gift will pass terminate. It will come to an end. It will pass away. And then he moves to what? Something that we're very familiar with. Remember the Greek word glossa. I said it like 10,000 times in a sermon weeks ago. My son Ryan reminds me of that at least twice a day. <laughs> Remember when you couldn't stop saying that word, dad? Yes, I obsess about a great many things. Glossa. He says tongues. What? Like tongues, because he says it'll pass away. Like tongues is prophecy. It too shall cease. Prophecies will come to an end. Tongues will come to an end. This is what he's saying. Love lasts forever, but these spiritual gifts, the one they were obsessed with and the highest gift of all, they have uh, a lifespan that will terminate and love will never terminate. He is saying this because they've got it backwards. They ought to be formed on the one that goes focused on the one that's forever and ever and ever rather than things that aren't forever and ever and ever. And then lastly, Paul also mentions here in the text uh, the Greek word gnosis, which is the spiritual gift of knowledge 
What does he say about that? He says about tongues, they'll cease. He says about prophecy, which is the highest of all gifts, it'll pass away. And then he talks about knowledge, the gift of knowledge, the gift of the ability to understand the Word of God, to properly apply it, to live it out, these sorts of things. Every Christian is given this in a measure, but some are given it in abundance or in the form of a spiritual gift where they just seem to know more about the Word than the regular guy like me or you. And he says, even of that particular gift, of the gift of gnosis, what will it do? It will also pass away. It's going to pass away as well. So the knowledge and the tongues and the gift of prophecies, they will cease. They will end. They have a shorter lifespan. They have a termination date. What do all these spiritual gifts have in common? That's exactly it. They have an expiration date. But... The main point is those things will end, but love never ends. So do you see how he's trying to reshape their thinking? They're obsessed with things that are good things. When they're properly used, they're for the good of the church. Tongues was a good thing in that day. Prophecy, uh, revelatory, is essential. We don't have the Word of God without it. And then expositional um, prophecy is essential to us. We have to learn the Word. and You have to have gifted people teaching it, right? And the gift of, uh, the, the gift of knowledge, that's essential as well. All these things are very, very important, contextually and even for today, with the exception of tongues. But they're not above love. And he demonstrates this by how they will end, but how love will never end. You understand what he's doing here? They're obsessed with things that will end. Be obsessed with a thing that will never end. That's his whole point here. It never ends. Verses 9 and 10, and that was all packed into verse 8, if you can believe it. Verses 9 and 10, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Incredibly, Paul provides a specific expiration date for some of the spiritual gifts. But notice how he only mentions in verse 9 the spiritual gifts of knowledge and prophecy there. See, he mentions the spiritual gift of tongues in verse 8, but it's not mentioned again here in sequence like in verse 8. It's not even mentioned here at all. Why is that? Why does he leave out tongues in verse 9 and only mention the other two? Why is it in 8 but not in 9? Well, here's my theory. I think it's because Paul knew that tongues would expire much sooner, like way before the gifts of knowledge and prophecy. That's what I, I, I think that's why. It, like in, in the back of his mind, he already knows tongues is going to end, whether it be in his lifetime or shortly after with the end of the apostolic age when John the Apostle finishes the word or when he passes away. I think he knows this. That's why he doesn't mention it only having a partial bit of it, and then how it'll go away when the perfect comes. Why? Tongues will already be gone. That's my theory, and I think it's sound. We have already learned that tongues had a much shorter lifespan, if you think about it, and so did revelatory prophecy. I believe, as well as a great many other cessationists, believe those things ended with the apostles. These two spiritual gifts, which were giants in their day, they terminated upon completion of God's Word in around 90 A.D. with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. They ceased with the apostles. Uh, J. Mac again says, The cessation of tongues is not mentioned in verse 9 because they will have ceased at an earlier time. That is why they are not stopped by the same thing that stops the gifts of knowledge and prophecy down in verse 10. That's what he's saying. Now, the cessation of tongues and revelatory prophecy means that God is not still speaking. 
Okay, and this is a huge thing today. We're always hearing this. Well, God told me this, and God told me that, and God revealed this to me, and God revealed that. You know, the, the point is, is that with tongues, which was a revelatory gift, and with prophecy, the revelatory style of prophecy, with those things ceasing, that means that God is no longer revealing. In other words, he has said all that needs to be said. He has revealed the whole perfect truth in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So if you want to hear God speak, open your Bible and read it. If you want to hear his voice audibly, as Justin Peters said, read it out loud. He has said everything that he needs to say. He does not need to say anything beyond this. And if anyone ever senses that the Spirit is speaking to them, what the Spirit is giving them is this. Not something in addition to this or on top of this. This is it. We are a sola scriptura church. Scripture alone. With the ceasing of these gifts of revelatory prophecy and with tongues, it proves that the Bible is complete. Those things are gone. They ended when the Bible was complete. They're done. When Paul wrote, we know in part, he was referring to knowledge again and to what believers know about Christ, essentially. And when he wrote, we prophesy in part, he was referring to the spiritual gift of of expositional prophecy and, and to what believers are actually taught about God. So what they, he's referring to what they know about God and what they are actually taught about God here in verse 9 and 10, or verse 9, I should say. He is saying that these two spiritual gifts that help us know and learn about Christ, they are merely partial in their capabilities and in their duration or their span. That's what he's saying. It's because these spiritual gifts, it's because of these spiritual gifts, the spiritual gift of knowledge and, and expositional uh, prophecy, it's because of those two particular spiritual gifts that we can know Christ at all. Well, how does faith come by the hearing of the word? That's, that's the spiritual gift of prophecy. Somebody's unpacking the word. And knowledge is given so you can understand and comprehend and believe and all these sorts of things. And so, so it's because of these two spiritual gifts we can know Christ and we can be taught about Christ. But Paul is saying they are incapable or they fall short of delivering absolute perfect knowledge and understanding. They're only partial in what they can accomplish. And why is that? Is it because the gifts are faulty? No, it's because of our flesh. Because our flesh is limited on how much it can comprehend about Christ. Uh, it's limited on how much it can know about Christ. The minute we begin to know something about Christ, our flesh confounds that and confuses that. So we have in a fallen world, in these fallen bodies, we have a lot of gross uh, limitations, you know. I, I love the fact that even though we're a disaster, that because of the Spirit of God, because of the regenerating power of the Spirit, that we can know Christ at all. I mean, if it weren't for the Spirit of God, we wouldn't even be able to know Christ at all. I know what this is like. I spent 30-plus years as an unbeliever. I didn't know Christ. I didn't want to know Christ. I just wanted to know me and a lot of other dumb things. And so because of these gifts, we can know Christ and we can learn about Christ, but they can't bring us all the way to perfection. And it's because of the limitations of this world, the limitations of our flesh, 
Uh, our depravity has been spiritually overruled, but our fleshly depravity remains. Paul talks about it as an old man who lingers on and causes him all sorts of trouble. He, at one point, he even says, who will deliver me from this body of death, this flesh? I thank God it's Christ. That's what he says. So our flesh isn't going to allow uh, the effects of this knowledge to the level of perfection. It dumbs down. It distracts us. It, and we have other adversaries, the world and the devil, who are always working at us to limit our knowledge, to attack our knowledge, to attack our understanding. So spiritual gifts and, 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 and these really, really great gifts like prophecy and knowledge, they're absolutely wonderful. They're beautiful. They're gifts from God, and they're absolutely needed in our churches, especially today where they're seemingly absent in so many churches. But just know that they will not deliver us. You know, they'll take us up to the shore, but not onto the beach. They do not take us all the way. They are partial in their ability because of our flesh. And verse 10, Paul says that the partial, now listen, this is the good news. He says in verse 10, that's verse 9. In verse 10, he says that the partial, and he's referring to spiritual gifts, uh, the spiritual gifts of knowledge and understanding that aid us in knowing and understanding Christ. He says that these gifts, they can't do the job all the way, but um, they will absolutely terminate when the perfect comes. See, that's how you know they can't do the job fully. They actually have an ending. They're not like love, that love is perfect and will last forever. These gifts are perfectly given gifts, but they cannot accomplish the full goal. It, they will terminate when the perfect comes, because when the perfect comes, then we will reach perfection. That's the idea. And when will, he says, the perfect comes? Is he talking about a person? No, I don't think so in particular. I think he's referring to an event because perfect is not capitalized. But when will it come? Well, it comes in two stages. The idea of perfection for the Christian comes in two stages. Unlike a great many in the holiness movement that thought that perfection could come in this life, they're just wrong. Paul teaches that very clearly here. So it comes in two stages. First, it comes at death for the believer. It comes when we go to sleep. It's what the New Testament actually refers to the death of a believer. It's this type of sleep. It's not soul sleep like with the seventh days or whoever that group is that came up with that. It's just like we go down into the grave and we're just body's just kind of, you know, chill, chilling out, watching HBO or whatever till Jesus comes back while our soul is with him. So firstly, this perfect comes at death. When a believer passes away, they are what? They are ushered into the presence of the perfect one, of Christ. And where do we go? We go to heaven, which is a perfect place since it is the abode of our perfect God. Matthew 5, 48, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. So believers reach a level of perfection, what? When they die because they have shed these bodies of sin and death, Romans 7, 24 to 25. So firstly, Paul has in mind when the perfect comes, and firstly, the first expression of that, the first dose of perfection comes when we pass away. Yeah, the body remains and it's corrupted and it decays in a grave, but the soul reaches absolute perfection in the presence of the perfect one, Christ himself. So there's where a type of perfection comes. And then secondly, Paul has this in mind as well, the perfect comes at the second advent. 
that is the return of Christ when Christ the perfect one returns. Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 5.9, Hebrews 7.28 really talks about the perfections of Christ over angels and everything else, over the law and everything else. When the perfect one, Christ, comes, he will establish what? Total perfection. His people shall be completely perfected as they are given new bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. I can't wait to get to that chapter. His kingdom shall be completely perfected as he removes his adversaries and establishes a new heaven and earth. That's perfect place. It's not for a thousand years. In my speculation or theology, it's forever and ever. If it's only for a thousand, it's not perfect. When he comes, he'll establish the perfect new heaven and new earth. He'll judge his enemies and deal with them. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, 21 verse 1. So when the perfect comes, what is Paul teaching us? There's no need for spiritual gifts that can't deliver. You know, the, the the spiritual gift of knowledge and the spiritual gift of expositional prophecy are given to hold us off until the perfect one comes. They're there as kind of an intermediary to keep us growing in Christ, to keep us knowing Christ. And that's the gift of faith as well. Those things were given in a temporary way until the perfect one comes. That's the way we ought to think about it. That is exactly what Paul is teaching. So when the perfect one comes, we don't need the spiritual gifts of prophecy. We don't need the spiritual gift of knowledge. We don't need any of those things. They were given to God's people as help aids during the present evil age. And when this age terminates upon the return, the second advent of Christ, the perfect, who is Christ himself, will come. And what he establishes will be perfect. And everything that is partial, including spiritual gifts, will all pass away. Perfect comes, no need for things that cannot deliver on perfection. Paul's aim here was not to minimize or downplay the importance of spiritual gifts. You might think, well, he's just trying to lead them completely away from spiritual gifts. No, in chapter 14, he talks about them more and the necessity of them and how important they are. In fact, he even says at one point, I wish everyone spoke in tongues. That's an interesting thing. We'll have to get to that and figure out what he means. But he's not trying to say, hey, Corinthians, let's go from one extreme to the other. Let's just become these crazy lovers, which seems weird, and just get rid of all our spiritual gifts. That's not what he's teaching them. What he's been teaching them is to practice their spiritual gifts in love. So he's not minimizing the importance of spiritual gifts by describing their shorter span. He's not doing anything like that. Um, he is actually what he's trying to do because of their deficiencies and their distractions and their lovelessness. He's trying to maximize the importance of love by demonstrating its, its longevity or longevity um, in comparison to the spiritual gifts which die out. That's all he's trying to do. His point is simple, really. And it seems complex, but it's simple. The very objects of the Corinthians' obsession, all these spiritual gifts and all these things, they're going to end, but love won't end. That's the point. That's what he's demonstrating. Therefore, what should they or we do? Focus more so on love and being loving and then having love be the filter of our lives, that we do everything through love, whether it be the exercising of our spiritual gifts, whether it be anything. It should be done in love for Christ and love for his people and love for others. 
right? Paul is essentially saying focus on love, not on pursuing just spiritual gifts. And if you do obtain spiritual gifts or you have them, use them in love. He's saying build your life on love. Be loving. Show love. Serve in love. Love is the only thing that lasts, right? Love is the only thing that never needs to be made perfect because it's already perfect. So build on that. If they were to do this, if, if they were to heed his warnings here, if they were to follow his instruction here, for one thing is absolutely certain is that the world around them would know that they belong to Christ because love is the character trait that we should be known for. And it, Christ was loving. Christ is loving. He is. He died for love died for his people that he loves. And so when we are loving, we are like Christ and people know we belong to him. When we are unloving, people assume that we belong to the world because it's a very harsh, mean, nasty, ugly, sinful, wicked place. It's a very hateful place, a very violent place. And yet if these Corinthians continued down the same broad road of destructive self-fulfillment and self-love and all this stuff, the world would literally see them as its own, not belonging to Christ, but belonging to the world itself. They would prove to be of the world and they would eventually perish with the world when it perishes. And it will perish, believe me. It's going to end. And it won't end one second sooner than the return of Christ, although I feel like America could end next week. It's gone nuts. This whole world is nuts. Matthew 7, 13 speaks to these things. First John 2, 15 to 17. Now let's move to that fourth point. The solicitation of love. We talked about the span. Now the solicitation of love, verses 11 and 12. Start at verse 11. Paul says this nextly. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. Oh my goodness, does this not sound like a mom or dad? to a kid, right, or to maybe a young adult child. I mean, when you're a parent, your kids are always kids. Even be 45 years old, that's your kid. But this sounds like a parent to children or something like that, or, or maybe some good counsel from one to another. You know, you're acting very childish, and, you know, I, I did the same thing, and when I grew up, I started acting like a man. That's what you need to do. You need to give up your childish ways. That's exactly what he's telling these people. In other words, the Corinthians were not acting like grown-ups. They weren't acting like mature Christians. They, they spoke, Paul says, they spoke, they thought, and they reasoned like children. And what do children tend to be? Impatient, unkind, not my little Jimmy, he'll, you, he'll get there. Impatient, unkind, envious. That's why one sibling clobbers the other one when the other sibling is holding something they want. I envy what you have, so here, I'm going to hit you over the head with a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. <laughs> boastful, arrogant. Children can be very boastful. Look what I did. I'm the best at this and that. I mean, this is what kids do. They can be very arrogant. They can be rude. Pull my finger, right? <laughs> That's usually the dad, but, you know. Um, insistent, they can be insistent. Are they not insistent? I don't know if you knew this or not, but I'm going to reveal a very, very deep and profound troubling truth about myself to you. When I was a tadpole, when I was a little runyon, a little ankle biter, my mom could hardly take me into any store because walking down an aisle, I would see something I want and grab it and insist upon having it. So much so that when... My mom said, no, son, we're on a fixed income. She'd give me a whole speech. I'm like, I don't care about a fixed income. I want this toy. She would take it from me and put it back on the shelf, and I would explode. 
I would, I would fall on the ground kicking and screaming. My mom was like, you were horrible, son. I couldn't take you anywhere. And I'm all, thanks for the encouragement. It was just amazing. Children are insistent. Children are insistent. They're irritable, aren't they? Huh? Especially when they get to be about, oh, I don't know, 20, 21, 22, 14. They get very irritable. They can be resentful. Right? Sibling rivalry. Great Kirstie Alley movie. Not that I would want you to see that. Uh, and uh, they can even be joyful, or Paul says in the text, uh, rejoicing over evil. How would a child do that? Well, do they not rejoice over the evil of their sibling getting destroyed by a parent? <laughs> you got spanked. They do rejoice over certain types of wrongdoing or at the defeat or destruction of a sibling or friend. I mean... Somebody wisely said that children are nothing more than vipers and diapers. Vody Bauckham. And it's very true. You know, Cameron used to jokingly say, do you want to see human depravity? You want to see total depravity? Then he'd tear a toy out of Carson's hand. Yeah! You know, I mean, it, this is what they do. This is what they do. And, and, and everything, all these points here, being impatient, unkind, all these things, these are the things that Paul described as unloving back in verses 4 to 6, right? Right? So, so these are the character traits of not love. Love is patient, not impatient, and all these things. What, am I, what are we saying here? That children tend to be, as a whole, very unloving. When they demonstrate these behaviors, they're not being loving at all. They don't have love in their heart. They're being selfish. They're being this. This is Paul's point. Because of the Corinthians' childish behavior, Paul hits them with more sarcasm in verse 11. He is saying, you know, I was like you Corinthians at one time when I was a child, but then I grew up. And I became a man, and I gave up my childish ways. That is exactly what he's saying here. This is what he's telling them. They're like on the receiving end going, 42-year-old guy sucking his thumb. Now, understand that every believer starts as a baby Christian. Amen? I mean, nobody is, is, is born again as R.C. Sproul. That'd be awesome, man. But then you'd really have nowhere to go. You know, it's like, right, the guy's seven and he's unpacking the mysteries of election. No, the only election he knows about is Trump versus Biden. And if he's seven years old, he shouldn't even be thinking about that junk. But literally, you know, every Christian starts as a baby Christian. First Peter 2, 2, they crave the spiritual milk. They're, they're young, and they, they nurse on the Bible. They're not eating the, the big stuff yet. You don't throw, well, you probably could with Caden. You could probably put a fully smoked tri-tip in front of that kid, and with the two teeth that he has, he would figure out how to get it down his throat. The kid never stops eating. But for the most part, babies are babies, and they, they have the milk, and they're not. We expect them to be immature, right? We expect them to, uh, but, but not only that, but when a, you have a baby Christian, they start kind of like a baby does naturally, right? But what is our expectation of that baby Christian, as well as it would be for a natural baby, that we expect them to grow and begin to mature and to learn things and to be able to, uh, to begin to conduct themselves differently and to behave differently, right? This is, this is the expectation for natural children, for, for people. And it is, of course, according to Scripture, the expectation for believers that if you are a born-again baby believer, that in 27 years, you're not still a born-again baby believer. 
that would be like a 14-year-old who's completely normal going around in diapers. You'd be like, it's time for a change, Tommy, right? I mean, seriously, would that be acceptable? I'm talking about a normal person that has all his faculties or, you know, and they're going around in a diaper. At 14, 15 years old, they don't have any debilitating thing or mental illness. This is a normal, that would never be acceptable to us, would it? No, no. Would it, why would it be any more acceptable to us to have a Christian who's born again in years and years and years later that they're, it's like they're still walking around in diapers? And, and, and that's what the Corinthians were doing. They weren't literally walking around in diapers, but they were walking around with elementary understanding and acting like a bunch of darn children. And, and they had been saved for almost two years because when he wrote this letter, it was 18 months after the, after the church was planted. So 18 months isn't a lot of time. You would expect Christians only being 18 months old in their faith to not be R.C. Sproul, but there should be some progression. They should know love by now because they were saved by love. And yet now you have this church. These are, these are a bunch of bottle-sucking, milk-addicted believers. And Paul is saying, you know, I started out like that too. But, you know, I grew and grew and, and I, I ga eventually gave up my childish ways. What's he saying? You know what being unloving is? That is a childish way, isn't it? Didn't we not just describe the behavior of kids? They're not very loving. Not when they're little. They're selfish. They're arrogant. They're demanding. That's not love. And that's how these people are acting. That's his point here. That is his exact point here. Now, every believer begins as a baby Christian, but they are expected to move from milk to meat over time, 1 Corinthians 3, 2, and to keep moving forward toward mature manhood. Ephesians 4, 13, that's the progression, that's the trajectory. Now, if we probe the depths of God's love in Scripture, we apply God's love to our daily lives, and we practice God's love in our own lives, and especially in the body of Christ and beyond, what's going to happen? We're going to move from bottles to plates, we will grow. But if we neglect the means of grace, especially the word of God and prayer, which are connect points for God's love, those things just connect us to his love. And if we do not apply and practice the love of God in our daily lives, we're going to stymie our growth and end up like the Corinthians. God's love is central to our spiritual development. Just as a parent's love is central to the development of a newborn or an infant or a toddler or a preschooler or a school-aged child. What is one of the problems in our culture today, in a society, in American society, that parents gave up on parenting and parents don't love their children properly, which stymies their development? This is why you have the 40-year-old living in mommy's basement. He wasn't loved well. Love develops us, especially God's love. The Corinthian church didn't have love, which means they weren't developing properly. And this is why Paul prayed for the Ephesians to be rooted and grounded in love and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19a. We cannot be filled up with all the fullness of God apart from daily doses of God's love, apart from even practicing God's love. It's essential to our development and lives. Ephesians 3.19b. But neglect keeps believers in a state of spiritual infancy, which is very hard on the church. 
Christian newborns are not expected to know the ways of love, just as natural newborns are not expected to know the ways of love. But once they begin to develop and grow, this expectation totally changes. Like I said, it's be unacceptable for a 14, 15 year old to go around acting like a baby. And it would be equally unacceptable for anyone who's been in the faith for two years, five years, or 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years, or 40 years to act just like they did on the day of their conversion. Where is progressive sanctification? Why are they not more like Jesus and more like their old dead self? We usually chalk that up that they haven't been converted because I think it's impossible to be converted and not changed and to not be moving toward Christ. But sometimes it happens. And these are real people, real believers in this Corinthian church. If you can believe it, Paul addresses them as brothers over and over and over. And somehow, even after almost two years, they're still acting like their pagan selves, like a bunch of children. It's sad. It's tragic. It would be totally unacceptable for anyone to be the same as they were on the day of their spiritual birth. Love, it totally and undoubtedly sanctifies, but it also solicits. And that's the point here. It says, it's time to give up your childish ways and grow up. That's the solicitation of love. That's not even an invitation from love. It's a solicitation in the form of a command. It's an imperative. Love demands that we act our spiritual age. Love doesn't say it's all right to keep acting like a child, Christian, to continue to be unloving and uncharitable. Love demands that we grow up and put away our childish ways. Love says it's time to start acting like men and women of faith instead of children that are selfish and unloving. That's Paul's explicit point here in this correction. That's his point in verse 11. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known, or, or then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is an interesting verse. Paul is basically using a mirror to illustrate the partiality of knowledge, the partiality of prophecy, the partiality of all spiritual gifts, with the exception of tongues, since it was assigned an earlier expiration date. He is using a mirror here. He's talking about seeing in a mirror dimly and all that. You must know that first century mirrors were made of hammered and polished bronze. Uh, they were very, very expensive. Only aristocrats and politicians and other elites could afford a mirror back in those days. The very best mirrors were still very blurry and provided at best a, as Paul says, a dim view of the viewer. You could see yourself, but the image was not super clear nor detailed. There were a lot of women going around thinking they looked a lot younger than they did because they couldn't accurately see their faces. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that statement. Maybe in a, in a bronze mirror, I would have had one chin. Then they got these advanced ones. I'm like, I have 10. I look like an armadillo. By the way, I'm growing my beard back out to hide it. I shaved it off, and Lily the other day goes, man, you look weird. I was like, love you too. <laughs> These mirrors back then were super high-end and super expensive, but at best you could not get a super clear image. It'd be really hard to pinpoint a pimple. You just wouldn't see it. When a person looked into one of those mirrors, they could see their face, but only dimly rather than fully. It was not like a face-to-face -face encounter as with today's mirrors, right? Ours today are so crystal clear. I mean, you see every blemish and you go, I'm going to stop using this thing. 
And this is essentially what Paul is illustrating is the effects of knowledge and prophecy and the other spiritual gifts. They provide partial knowledge. They provide partial understanding, just as a bronze mirror provides partial views of oneself. But when the, Paul says, the perfect comes, we shall see Christ, not through the dim eyes of faith or, you know, but with our actual eyes, with literal physical new eyes. And, and we will see him from, instead of by faith and through faith, we will see him face to face is what Paul is saying. I say we'll pass from SD to 8K, baby, right? Super clear. And the knowledge we possess shall go from partial to perfect. What we knew in part, Paul says, shall be made fully known. Uh, we will fully know Christ just as he has always fully known us. See, that's the thing with Christ is he has perfect knowledge. He's God, so there's nothing partial about him. He sees us exactly as we are. And one day, we see him now through the eyes of faith, which sometimes gets obscured like in a mirror. We have this flesh. We have the devil. We have the world. But when he comes, the perfect comes, we will see him perfectly. And, of course, the spiritual gifts that aided our sanctification and help us perceive him at all and walk in his ways at all, all these things will pass away. Why? Because they're not needed any longer. That's Paul's point. It's like the old cruddy mirrors. You're not going to need that anymore because you'll have a real clear one like way later on and you'll be able to see Christ as clearly as you possibly can in perfection. J-Mac once more, when the perfect comes, we will have... No more need of knowledge or wisdom, preaching or teaching, prophecy or interpretation. We will not even have a need of the Bible. Now, that scares me, but I know what he's saying. Why would we need to run around with our Bibles in the kingdom of Christ when we have the living Bible walking around us? He's the Word made flesh, all truth in a person. You don't need your Bible. He's there. The Bible is even a temporary gift given by God to hold us off until the perfect comes. He says, we will no longer need the written word because we will be eternally in the presence and, full, and have full comprehension of the living word. Man, that is, we don't need the written because we have the living word. Praise God. Do you know what will not pass away, though, during this time? All the spiritual gifts will go, he says. They'll all pass away. But you know what won't go? Love. Love. The love that is with us now, it'll be with us tomorrow, next year. It'll be when the perfect comes, and it will be with us throughout all eternity because it never ends. Therefore, love is above all the spiritual gifts, and it should be our top priority. This is also the solicitation of love, to make it number one in our lives. Now, let's move to that fifth and final point. We're really beginning to wrap up here. The last one, the last S is the supremacy of love, verse 13. That's the last verse. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And he says, but the greatest of these is love. So according to Paul, faith, hope, and love are the three highest spiritual virtues. That's why he identifies them here. Why are they the highest spiritual virtues? Well, just think about it for a moment. Think about faith. What happens if you don't have faith? It is impossible to please God. You can't even know him. Hebrews eleven sixteen. So in terms of spiritual virtues, faith is right up at the top of the list because apart from it, you cannot please God. You cannot know, know God at all. That's why. And then obviously he says hope. Hope is another one of these very high top spiritual virtues. Why is that? Because without hope, the heart is sickened by despair. Proverbs 13, 12, right? If you don't have hope, you have no quality of life, nothing. 
Have you ever been on the verge or brim of hopelessness? I have in life, and it is the worst possible place to be. I guarantee you hopelessness is the number one cause of suicide. It is a terrible, terrible thing. That's why it's a high virtue. To have hope is really to have everything in a sense. And then he says, love, he says. Without love, right, it's the highest virtue, he says, but without love, it's impossible to properly bear the image of God because God is love. It's impossible. Without love, it's impossible to be anything like God because God is love. Without love, it is impossible to develop as his children, 1 John 4, 7. So that's why these things are the highest virtues. Without faith, you, you got nothing. Without hope, you got nothing. Without love, you've got nothing. What did Paul say in verses 1 to 7? Without faith, I am, or without love, I am nothing. I have nothing. I'm, I'm bad music in heaven, he says. But Paul does say that the highest of these spiritual virtues is love. He calls it the greatest it is the supreme virtue. Why is that? Well, for starters, it's because love is eternal. It outlasts the other virtues. It has no expiration date. Love never ends, verse 8. But faith and hope actually have an expiration date. They will pass away along with the other spiritual gifts when the perfect comes. You know, when Christ comes, the perfect one comes, we, we don't, there's no need for faith or the gift of faith because we're perfected in him and we have the person of our faith right before us. We don't have to trust in him in the same way we do now. We will just automatically as new resurrected people believe in him as if we always did. But it'll be a completely different dynamic. There's no need of faith and hope when the perfect comes because the person of our faith and hope will be with us, Jesus Christ, forever and ever and ever. Secondly, love is the greatest spiritual virtue because it is the most God-like. Think about it. God does not have faith and hope. What the heck is God going to hope in? What is he going to have faith in? He does, he's not a God of hope and faith. Those are gifts that he gives to get us through till the perfect comes. God doesn't have faith. Who would he be trusting in? Himself? I believe in myself. He doesn't need faith. He doesn't need to be redeemed. He doesn't need to be saved. He's the Savior. So to have faith and hope doesn't necessarily make us like God. It makes us his children, but it doesn't make us like God. Therefore, faith and hope are not God-like. They're not able to make us like God. They just connect us to God. God is love, so love makes us like God. And this is why love is the most God-like and greatest spiritual virtue. That's Paul's point. And we could add purity and holiness to the list, but Paul doesn't list them here. They are superior spiritual virtues as well. They make us like God. They will endure. But Paul's focus is on love. Why? Because that's what was missing in the Corinthian church. That church had a plethora of spiritual gifts. It had a lot of willing and able members. It had the spiritual virtues of faith and hope, but it did not have the supreme spiritual virtue. It had become like the Ephesian church, but worse. The Ephesian church, it says, abandoned its first love, which is its love for the gospel of their salvation. Revelation 2, 4. It was like those churches today that begin with the gospel, then move on to other things. The Ephesians saw the gospel as the A, B, and C's of Christianity, not the A through Z. They saw it as a mere entry point into the things of God, not as a way of life and a much-needed necessary daily reminder 
But the Corinthians had essentially abandoned all love. Not just love for the gospel, but all love. They had exchanged the supreme spiritual virtue for carnal worldly virtues such as pleasure and personal gain. If they refused to heed Paul's warnings here in chapter 13 and throughout this epistle, surely the Lord himself would remove that church's lampstand, right? And what is the removal of a church's lampstand? It's not just the end of a physical church that's somewhere, this one or any other one. I think it's the ultimate disgrace for any Christian to be caught up in something that is so far from the mark that God actually shuts it down. That's tragic. That's what is spoken about in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. May we as a church, as a small expression of the larger body of Christ, heed the warnings of Paul here and give up our childish ways and be mature men and women be the mature men and women that God has called us to be by, by modeling the spirit of love. How do we model the spirit of love? How do we do this? How do we carry out love? Well, what did he tell us in verses 4 to 7? Be patient with people. Be kind to others. Do not envy. Do not boast. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Don't boast. That's unloving. Do not be rude. Do not be insistent, irritable, or resentful. Refuse to rejoice at wrongdoing. Don't take pleasure in the demise of others. Rejoice with the truth. Bear all things like the burdens of our brothers and sisters. I tell you, that's one of the most loving things you can do. Believe all the truth, the whole Bible, especially that God loves other believers just as he loves you. We tend to forget that. Hope in Christ and in the power of God, which has literally no limits. And endure all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, especially the ugly, which I would chalk up right now at this particular moment in the history of this little church. What is, what is an ugly behavior that I see at this church consistently? It is the unloving behavior. The ugly, the ugly in this church is the unloving behavior that arises from person to person in this church. That's the ugly First of all, we need to grow up and stop treating our brothers and sisters in these ugly ways, in these unloving ways. But we also, as maturing believers, need to learn how to endure these things and to give grace where needed. Paul gives us the instructions for how to live out love. It's by doing all these things in the text. And when we put into practice these things that he lists in verses 4 to 7... We are modeling the spirit of love, and more importantly, we are modeling Christ who modeled love perfectly, aren't we? And this is why he is and always will be our best example. Nobody embodied or exhibited or gave love like Christ in the history of the whole world, not even Moses or anyone else. That's why Hebrews says he is the top so when we are loving, we are most like Christ, who is equally to God, love, because he is God. He is always our best example. When we follow these instructions here in chapter 13, we're just modeling the spirit of love and Christ himself. So may we look to Jesus and learn to love like Jesus. Amen?